there's two things that are important to know about politicians. One thing is that they're not like other people. And the second thing is that they are like other people. Welcome to the Social Change Podcast, the podcast for agents of change. And now your host, Matt Needham. Hello, this is the Social Change Podcast. I had a blast during episode one last week in which we spoke with Kyle Walker about the structure of social change and some criticisms of it. Uh, if you missed that episode, you can find us at www.socialchangepodcast.com. Uh, and you can also find us on the iTunes store by searching for Social Change Podcasts. Moving on within the realm of strategy for social change, today I want to talk about the role of politicians. When people think about social change and political change, their first instinct is to look to the elected individuals in government. And if you are a young person or you know a young person who wants to change the world, 99 times out of 100, the recommendation is going to be go into politics, go be a politician. Well, to actually answer if that's a good idea or not, I'm bringing on a friend of mine who has served in electoral politics and outside of it in different avenues of social change. Uh, so I'm pleased to bring on Leandro Lett to the show. Leon, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. So, Leon, uh, you served in the Michigan State Legislature for six years. You are the chair of the Michigan Taxpayers Alliance, a group of people who get together and discuss the different ways they're doing this type of work. You were the lead on uh, multiple state constitutional amendments, if I'm correct. You've also worked at the Institute for Humane Studies, which focuses on developing young academics for change. Uh, you've worked at the XIV Foundation, which does... Uh, a single issue focus in changing things on that topic. Um, so you've kind of run the gamut in different strategies for social change. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's pretty much correct, Matt. I think uh, like many young uh, activists and libertarians, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I uh, focused on uh, trying to bring about change to the political process. And as such, I worked for six and a half years in the state legislature as a staff person for different state lawmakers, then was elected to local office at the County Board of Commission, later elected to state office. I served in the state legislature as a, as a, a House member uh, for uh, three terms, six years, and then went back uh, to local politics where I was reelected to the Board of Commissioners uh, in, the, in the Detroit suburbs and uh, am still involved. I uh, recently won a primary uh, back to the uh, Board of Commissioners. So I spent many years, I've been elected seven times essentially to public office at local and state levels and also served as a staffer for uh, six and a half years. Uh, and in, in between all that, I've served, like you mentioned, uh, I've worked uh, for uh, libertarian organizations that seek to bring about more liberty and libertarian-based uh, social change like the Institute for Humane Studies, which takes a more academic approach. Uh, so yeah, I've got, a, 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 for better or worse, a long history in politics. <laughs> Uh, and a long history in trying to bring about libertarian ideas into uh, into society. So, like I said, most people, when they think of how you go and do this stuff, how you you know change uh, social relations and social institutions for whatever your end goal may be, 
people always look at becoming a politician, running for office. Um, what got you into politics in the first place? What was your vision of, of what you were going to accomplish and why you got into it in the first place? Well, I think I got involved for the same reasons that you just articulated. I thought that the way to make change in society was through the political process. And, uh, and quite frankly, I was wrong. Uh, now, I'm heavily invested in the political process. I do obviously still engage in the political process, but it's not the place that change happens. It's the political process is the result of social change, not the source of social change. So if you really want to make change, pro-liberty change, one of the least productive ways to do it is to get involved in the political process. The political process only works with society as it currently stands. Uh, social change is about changing the, the way things currently stand. And so uh, politics is, is a, it's kind of a, a poor place to make substantial change. You can tinker around the edges. You can do the best you can. And that's what I try to do. Um, but I have only, you know, can work with the cards that are dealt you in, in, uh, by society. Now, uh, so, but I, I want to challenge you on this point here, and that is, so let's think about some of the biggest uh, legislative moves that has happened in our country the past decade or so. You know, look at, say, Obamacare or No Child Left Behind and the impact that has had on many people's lives, be it in, you know, um, how they get their health care or their schooling and stuff. So it seems like, you know, if you're able to be in the room and make those kind of changes, you're going to have a huge impact upon society. Well, yes, but let's remember that um, issues like Obamacare uh, are only possible by how society is already, society's expectations about what the government is involved with to begin with. For example, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, back when she was a first lady and, and her husband was president, uh, initiated very serious efforts to bring about national health care. And it failed because uh, the political culture wasn't ready to accept it at the time. So there was a lot of work being done by social change activists, mostly on the left, to move society toward a expectation that government will provide that, that, that product, that, that service, that should be involved in that arena. So nothing that happens uh, in politics, whether it's Obamacare or whether it's uh, uh, anything, uh, can happen without society uh, tolerating it or, or expecting it. So the real change toward national health care was done by activists on the left that advanced those ideas academically, intellectually, socially, through journalism, uh, in, a, in, a, in a variety of different ways to move the public toward expecting uh, government involvement in health care. Interesting. So it sounds like you're, you're proposing that you can have even more of an effect if you're one of the people influencing how the politicians are going to act. So I think – to understand this better for someone who hasn't been in the process is to explore a little bit what these politicians exactly are, what are these uh, specimens we're examining, um, what motivates them, what are they like, um, and, and what is you know a, daily, a day in the life of a politician actually like? Well, first, um, you have to, uh, people should need to understand that uh, there's two things that are important to know about politicians. One thing is that they're not like other people. Okay. And the second thing is that they are like other people. Hmm. Uh, and when I, I, I think that, that covers every possible thing. <laughs> well, in the, the, the thing to imp important to remember what makes them not like other people 
is that different careers and, and the choices people make in what kind of things they want to do with their lives, uh, are, people are motivated by different things. Uh, you know, for example, um, you know, somebody who wants to become a veterinarian, uh, turns out that veterinarians, when, you, when people study them, uh, like animals. Uh, really? No shot. Yeah. Similarly, people who uh, want to become architects oftentimes like uh, marrying uh, the, the engineering components of their mind with the artistic components of their mind. People who want to become engineers are more likely to enjoy tinkering and, uh, and calculating. So people have different skills and interests that move them toward particular careers. The people who are successful in the political arena have certain characteristics that are more predominant than than the society generally. Uh, now, when I, I make a note to say that um, people who are successful in politics are not the same thing as people who are interested in politics. There's lots of people who are interested in going into politics, including a lot of libertarians, who fail uh, at becoming uh, successful in getting elected and in being successful if they are elected in moving, uh, in making change happen. And they fail for a couple reasons. Uh, People who are interested in making change tend to be interested in policies. They tend to be interested in ideas. They tend to be interested in um, in data. They tend to be interested in philosophy. People who are interested in getting elected tend to be interested in self-promotion. They tend to be believe that they are are uniquely capable, uh, more so than other people, at making decisions on behalf of others. Uh, they tend to think that they uh, deserve to be uh, in a place of rec special recognition. So their 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 motivations to run for school uh, president, class president when they're younger, and then local office and so forth, they tend to be attracted to the the the, the honors that come along with uh, being in the political arena. So this is they're the this is the aspect where they're unlike most people. They're more predominantly interested in this sort of, uh, of living in terms of telling other people how to live their lives and such, right? They're more interested in that, and they're better at self-promotion because they focus on it. Now, people win elections not because uh, voters study their policy papers or uh, are intrigued by their, uh, their ideas for shaping a transit system. People vote for people based on how a, a, a person projects themselves. And people who are self-promotional think an awful lot about how to project themselves to others. So there's been a lot of research on why people uh, are, are attracted, what kind of people are interested in, in getting involved in the political process. And, and consistently uh, among uh, more modern and, and recent research uh, has shown that um, people who have uh, sociopathic tendencies. Now, we're, all of us have some sociopathic tendencies. Every person does. But when I say sociopathic, yeah, so I don't. What's mean, the definition here? Yeah, I don't mean mass murderer. I mean people who uh, have a lower degree of empathy toward others. Okay. You know, a, a pure sociopath may have very little to no empathy about other people. Uh, they tend to be calculating, they tend to be uh, very, very. Um, uh, ego and self-motivated to the exclusion of others. Now, I'm sure none of this applies to you. What's that? Now, I'm sure none of this applies to you, right? No, I think it does. I think uh, uh, to be successful, you have to have some of these elements in politics. Okay. Uh, now, but, but people uh, who are higher on this sociopathic scale, according to research done at Oxford University very recently, for example, 
or done by Harvard University, Robert O'Hare, the, uh, the consensus leading national expert on, on, uh, on the research on sociopaths, uh, have, have demonstrated that um, people who are engaged in the political arena, elected officials, and who are, for some reason, stockbrokers, and uh, <laughs> two other careers, have a higher percentage of people who score high on the sociopathy scale than others. In fact, uh, Oxford uh, uh, research, uh, they conclude that some politicians, in order to score, uh, in order to be successful, need to have these tendencies. For example, if you're going to order people into war, uh, if you're a politician and you're going to be in charge of declaring war and invasions, it helps to be a little bit cold-hearted. You know, you may be more successful at doing those things. Yeah. Um, and so, and so the people who tend to go into politics tend to be a little bit higher in the sociopathic scale. They tend to be experts on self-promotion. They tend to be focus a lot of their time and energy on how to promote themselves and how to get ahead and how to get people to vote for them and how to shape how people think of them. They're really focused on that. And therefore, they're much more likely to win elections than somebody who's focused on uh, studying policy ideas, studying philosophy, uh, understanding what is right and what is wrong and what the role of government is and all those things. People who study those things may become great academically. They may become great uh, sources of knowledge on those subjects, but they rarely win elections. They almost always lose to somebody who's a lot more self-motivated, a lot more self-glad-handing, and a lot more focused at winning uh, and promoting themselves than, than others. So this is, this is definitely, you know, a, a, uh, I would say most people describe it as a cynical take on politics. But I think, you know, you've been there. You, you've been in this process for a long time. You, you actually know what it's like. Um, and I think there's no reason to look at this necessarily negatively. I think it's all about understanding how things actually are and using it to your advantage, right? Um, so with this view of, of politicians and knowing what kind of people are in place, how do you get them to do what you want, essentially, I guess is my question. Well, you don't. Because the way that um, politicians are like everybody else yeah. is they do what's in their interests. Okay. When, when somebody buys a car, they don't buy a car typically, the, the car that's in the best interest of society, most people. Yeah. They buy the car that best suits the needs of their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people buy a home, they take into account the school district that their kids will go to. They take into account the anticipated resale value. They take into account the number of square feet they need uh, for the money and, and all kinds of factors. They rarely take into account what, where can I buy a home that will be in the best interest of, uh, of society. And so with most decisions that everyday people make, they make the decision that's in the best interest of, of their family – uh, their careers, and uh, their value. Yet somehow we expect politicians to be immune from this, to be non-human. Uh, when politicians get elected and they, make, and they cast votes, they act like every other human being does on earth. They cast votes on what's in their interests, what's in interest of their career, what's in interest of their family, what's in interest of their future. Uh, this should come as no surprise, but it does. For some reason... Uh, so many people hold on to this um, view of politics that they were taught in elementary school and junior high, that politicians go into office and they, they objectively listen to all these uh, pr- 
you know, ideas and proposals on policy subjects and separate themselves and make these um, the best educated decision they can on what will be the best of the broadest number of people. Well, the, the schoolhouse rock view of politics. Yeah, what we're taught through the schoolhouse rock videos, what we're taught when we go on field trips to the, the Capitol building. We're taught the theory of government in a utopian world. And we're and for some reason, um, nobody lives that life in their own world. <laughs> they are they believe they should make decisions that are in the interest of their families, but they don't think politicians should. They think politicians are angels or, or should be. Now, at the same time, they think that they know they're not. Mm-hmm. Everybody's disappointed. Not everybody. Most people are disappointed uh, in the product they get from the political process. Yet they shouldn't be. This should not be a mystery to them. You know, yeah. why are they disappointed? Because they're getting what's in the interest of politicians, not what's in the interest of the public. Yeah, so they should expect that. This is one question I wanted to ask is a lot of people want to know, why are politicians so stupid? Why do they do stuff like build bridges to nowhere? Right, right. Well, a lot of decisions that um, look stupid uh, to the public are actually in the interest of politicians. The guy who builds the bridge to nowhere uh, also creates construction jobs in his district. Also gets to uh, uh, reward the uh, concrete industry and the steel industry, potentially even companies that um, that contribute to him and help him stay in office. So it's perfectly rational, logical. He's helping himself have a chance to go from a congressman to a senator by building that bridge to nowhere, because those special interests are going to uh, appreciate it and help him stay in power and maybe help him reward him by helping him move um, further in the political process. Uh, whereas the public, they can become frustrated by this. They might think it's stupid the bridge to nowhere is built. And in rare cases, the public will even throw out a politician who's too blatant. But most people um, simply don't have uh, the capacity to know what their government is doing. And this is not because people are lazy or stupid. It's the opposite. It's because people are, it would be foolish of them to dedicate themselves to knowing what their politicians are doing. Now, that seems a little counterintuitive, but think about this. Every person, uh, when I was in the state legislature, I would cast maybe about 800 votes a year, including votes on amendments and bills and so forth. Um, and then the state senator on the other side of the building would case, you know, cast a similar number of votes. That's just for the state legislature. Then there's also federal Congress. They may cast hundreds and hundreds of votes at the House level and at the Senate level. But what about your county uh, level of government? Hundreds of votes are being cast there by your county commissioner. What about your city? Do you know what, how your city council is voting? Do you I know how the issues that they're voting on? What about your school board? Do you know how your school board is voting? What about, you know, what about your, um, your intermediate school district? Do you know how that, what's going on there? <laughs> should you be an educated voter? Well, you should know, but that would require you to spend all of your time not focusing on your job, not focusing on feeding your family, not focusing on taking care of your kids, but focusing on your intermediate school district votes and all these other votes, it's impossible. So people rationally know that they can't do that. So they can't follow the votes of their politicians, it's impossible. And it'd be stupid of them to do that because they would put their their careers, their families and everyone else at risk because they wouldn't have any time for those things. So with this all in mind, if I was with an activist group and I was trying to enact some policy, say, audit the Federal Reserve, uh-huh. um, and I'm trying to bring this you know, before a group of politicians that I need to sign off on this to make this happen, what 
are they going to consider when they're making this decision? Um, and I'm particularly curious, based on your earlier comments, if these kind of factors aren't even be able to be changed in the short term. These are kind of factors that have happened over the long run, and I need to start higher up the chain. But with that all in mind, what kind of things are a politician thinking about when they're making a decision on a policy I want to see enacted? Uh, they're wondering, they're consciously and subconsciously calculating what's in their interest. So if you come before them with a proposal, uh, whether it's fed out of the Federal Reserve, they immediately are, are execute what they're exceptionally good at, which is calculating the value to them. Uh, so they'll you know, ask questions on the policy side of it and so forth, and, they, and, and they'll factor that in. But they're thinking, who is this going to upset? Who is this going to make happy? How will those things play out uh, in my future re-election or my ability to succeed in getting what I want done in the political arena? So they calculate those things out. Will this, will this piss off leadership? Will this, um, will this piss off any substantial donors? Will this uh, make it uh, more difficult for me to get reelected with the public? They make all those calculations and factor those things in. So if you want uh, to make a change, first you need to do something that is already, that's in the politician's interest. Typically, you cannot get a politician to vote against their own interests any easier than get your next door neighbor to do something to jeopardize their own personal career. Um, so you should pick things that are already sort of have where politicians can gain value, not just by winning votes, because they know that the politicians, that voters rather, are the, are the people who are paying the least attention. They still care. They still want to know what voters are going to think, but they know they're paying the least attention. They know that primary voters will pay more attention, so they're focused on what primary voters will think. But then they're focused on what their leadership will think. They're focused on what their donors will think. And they know their donors will pay attention. So you need to know. So many people are frustrated. I've seen this even with some elected officials. There's been a few very ideological people who have been elected to office that I served with that get very frustrated because they spend so much time making the case for their idea uh, based on facts and figures and what's in the best interest of the public. And they're mystified why no other colleagues are interested in, uh, in supporting the idea. Uh, it's not a mystery. It's a fact that it's not in their colleagues' interest. So, so you touched on this earlier, but I want to dive more directly into it. Do you think people should become politicians to advance social change? Uh, most people should not uh, because two reasons. One, you're – Getting elected is going to put you pitted up against people with different skill sets like we already discussed. Uh, so being elected is a huge challenge. Second, if you're lucky enough to be elected, suppose you do you learn uh, how to campaign and you have some skills to promote yourself and all these other things, then you're going to face, you'll be, you're not likely to be the only person elected to a political body, obviously. In the state house, for example, in Michigan, I had to serve with 109 colleagues, mm -hmm. plus 38 state senators. None of these people shared my libertarian perspectives on the role of government. Yeah. So you, you end up being, in some ways, like Ron Paul, you know, who was a, a, a great uh, advocate for libertarian ideas. But you know, if you judge him based on how much, uh, how many bills he passed that limited the size and scope and cost of government while he was in Congress, if you just judged him on that, you'd say he was a colossal failure. Yeah. How many bills did he get through? Zero. 
How many minds did he change in Congress? Pretty much zero. Now, where he was successful was in projecting out to the public, talking about the ideas of liberty to the broad public. He was a great communicator in that regard and a great activist in that regard. But he was a failure as a politician when judged about strictly on bringing about change through the political process. Uh, so, yeah, you'll get elected maybe if you have those skill sets. And then you can sit there in your little corner at your desk voting no all the time while the horrible parts of the political process just move right by you. So in your experience as a politician and someone who's worked in other areas of you know, social change and advocacy work, what is your view of how change actually happens then? Well, change, change happens when political change and policy change happen when the public, when the, uh, when the, when the public shifts what they are willing to tolerate. Uh, so, so a lot of times people think that um, politicians try and gauge what the people want and then they'll adjust their votes to what the, the people want. But politicians don't care as much about what the people want as they care about what the public will tolerate. They only need to know what is the risk to their public office. So the way to enact social change through politics is not to um, change what the people want, but to change what the public was willing to tolerate. And that change doesn't happen from the political process, or rather it doesn't happen through politicians. Politicians sit around and wait to see what the, what the changes in the public are. It happens through what's, what's uh, Hayek has identified as the pyramid of social change, and that I've fleshed out a few others have. At the very top of that pyramid, change happens when, when an idea is cultivated uh, by philosophers or academics, when there's a core idea about how human beings should relate to each other and how they should relate to the universe around them. So those people might be people like Friedrich Hayek or uh, might be people like, uh, on the other side, Karl Marx. Uh, or it might be people in religious arenas like you know, Buddha or Jesus and so forth, the, the originators of the ideas. And those uh, then, I guess you could call it trickle down, but they flow down to those that take those core ideas and articulate ways to integrate them in society. Places like think tanks uh, that sit around and say, well, here's some great ideas. How, how can we shape them in a way that uh, we can implement them? Uh, and from there, there are people who are communicators, journalists, um, writers, authors, uh, radio broadcast people, people who do podcasts that take those ideas from the think tanks and from the uh, philosophers and authors and project them out to the public. Beyond that, then, there are other people who are activists. These are people who then take these ideas that are now being disseminated through the communicators and find ways to promote these ideas to the broad public. Right now, you're seeing that happening with people like Black Lives Matter. Uh, but you're also seeing it happening uh, in uh, marijuana um, legalization activists. Um, and they communicate to the public in a myriad of ways on Facebook, on podcasts, uh, op-eds to the newspapers, uh, being interviewed on TV, doing protests, uh, doing events on campuses. And then over time, like you're seeing with marijuana um, legalization, uh, and you're seeing uh, with the issue of uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, with to to the, 
the concern of the interaction with police agencies and African Americans, you see the shift in public. At some point, somebody is going to lose elect lose an election because they're too pro drug war. Now that's happened in a few isolated cases, but at some point, somebody who's higher profile is going to be lose an election because they're too high, uh, too pro drug war. And when that happens, you'll see an immediate shift in what politicians vote on the drug war. Because they will see the public is no longer willing to tolerate the drug war as they've carried it out currently. They've been carrying it out for the last several decades. And you'll see dramatic political change. And you'll have people who misinterpret that. They will say, ah, well look, the politicians made this change. Ah, look, a court decision made this change. No, no, the court decision and the politicians reacted to the social change. One one big example that comes to mind for me there is like the the gay marriage ruling uh, that just recently happened, right? Well, yeah, but even beyond that, if you look at um, in the nineteen nine, uh, rather in two thousand and three or so, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states could no longer make it illegal for romantic interactions between people who are gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, you know, many states still had laws on the books, but the same U.S. Supreme Court, not the same justices, clearly, but the same U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah, institution using the same constitution ruled in 1986 <laughs> that it was perfectly legal in, in their uh, in the case uh, Bowers versus Hardwick in 1986. The Supreme Court ruled, hey, um, it's perfectly legal for states to ban romantic interaction between people who are gay. Now, what happened between 1986 and 2003? Um, an awful lot of uh, happened that moved that window. The court then just reacted to the moving of the window. So actually, you were talking about the Constitution there and the Supreme Court, and you've worked on some projects that I think are pretty unique. I don't know many people who have worked on successful constitutional amendments or multiple of them, and I believe you've worked on at least two successful um, projects like this. So can you tell me about them and, and what you uh, what they were for? Yeah, actually, I've uh, worked on three, uh, but... Um, there's sometimes there are mechanisms uh, to go around the politicians if the public is ready for change and supportive of the change, uh, but the politicians aren't willing to embrace it because their incentives aren't lined up right. They still don't get anything from going along with the public change. And, and that was a case, for example, with the issue of racial preferences. Uh, some people uh, refer to it as affirmative action. Uh, here in Michigan, uh, the University of Michigan uh, had a policy of evaluating applicants uh, with a substantial amount of, um, of, of, of evaluation based on the person's uh, ethnicity. Uh, and uh, the public is broadly against this, but they're still, they still tolerated it. Politicians weren't losing over this issue. And frankly, politicians uh, have an incentive uh, to be in charge of a lot of processes. They, they prefer that they decide uh, the qualifications of who gets benefits, including university admissions or jobs, or these policies also apply, apply toward um, contracts, you know, government contracts and so forth. Um, so I became part of a group uh, that uh, organized the petition drive. Uh, in Michigan, we have the, uh, in, in our constitution, a, a provision to allow citizens to use a petition process to propose a constitutional amendment and put it before voters. So essentially, we went around the government uh, using the Constitution, the state Constitution, 
to propose a constitutional amendment banning the government's ability to use a person's ethnicity or race or gender uh, in consideration uh, for jobs, for contracts, for public university admissions and so forth. And it, it was a three-year process. Uh, it, it was a lot of stop and starts. There was a lot of law decisions, uh, court decisions that uh, confounded us. There was a lot of fundraising issues. But in the end, in uh, 2006, we got this issue on the ballot and voters approved it pretty overwhelmingly in Michigan uh, and ended up uh, amending the state constitution uh, to take that power of making ethnic preferences away from the political class. Now, I did this, uh, I followed it up with the, uh, being, the, being the campaign manager of the Arizona uh, Civil Rights Initiative, which did the same thing in the state of Arizona. Uh, but uh, one of the other constitutional changes that I was involved with show that there is the possibility of being effective in the political arena as a politician if you can sense opportunities, the right moment at the right time. And in 2000, and I think four, uh, the, um, maybe it was five, the, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled uh, rather infamously that it was legal for state and local governments and federal government, I suppose, to take people's property away from them, their home, their business, uh, and give it to another private owner uh, as long as that uh, new private owner uh, was going to create more tax revenue for the government. This issue was involving a, a lady in, new, um, in Connecticut who didn't want to sell her home to a developer who wanted to put in condos. Well, the local government decided that condos would generate more tax revenue for her for the government than her home does. So they took her home away from her and gave it to the private developer. And this went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that that was indeed illegal, it was indeed legal and constitutional. Well, there was outrage over this decision in, in the early 2000s. Uh, and the outrage was spread across the political spectrum. Liberals, conservatives, libertarians were all outraged that this could be allowed to happen. And many states' legislatures then decided that they were going to make it unconstitutional or illegal in their own state uh, for this to take place. The federal government may allow it, but they're going to ban it within their own state. Well, I sense this as an opportunity because there was the politicians in Michigan felt like we need to do something. The problem was in many of the states where also politicians felt like they would need to do something or it would look good if they did something, they did very weak, um, leaky uh, bans on this sort of uh, political takings. They did bans that really uh, had a lot of loopholes so that governments could still take property. They would just have to declare it blighted or have some other declaration. Fortunately, in Michigan at the time, I was the chair of a committee where any bill that dealt with this issue was likely to go through. So I, uh, I was able to, using the help of the Institute for Justice, the libertarian legal firm, and the Mackinac Center, a free market think tank here in Michigan, craft a piece of legislation and a constitutional amendment that was very airtight that protected people's property rights. But I had to recognize that politicians wouldn't do this because they cared. They would do it because it was in their interests. So I reached out onto the Senate side, I was a House member, and offered the Senate Majority Leader to let a senator on the other side of the any senator he chooses, to have his name attached to this particular constitutional amendment to make him look good. Huh, okay, nice. And so uh, he said, well, there is a senator who's got a challenging re-election that he could, if he could brag that he protected people's property rights, that he would be, um, that he would like, it would help him in his re-election. 
And I'm like, well, I'll be happy to give this bill to him. I just get to control the content, but it'll get to be his bill. And the Senate agreed to that in order to help their colleague. So it passed uh, with two-thirds majorities in Michigan House, Michigan Senate, uh, as constructed by myself, the Mackinac Center Institute for Justice, and then was uh, put on the ballot in 2006 and adopted widely by voters. So, but I had to take into account you know, the fact that I had to make sure this was in the political interest of people, mm-hmm. of my colleagues, and calculate the best way to get the policy I wanted by offering uh, the political value to others. So you talked about identifying opportunities. You know, there's been so cases where there has been a shift in what the public will tolerate and then yep. acting upon it in the political process. Um, do you see any opportunities on the horizon that you wouldn't mind sharing right now? Well, I, I think the drug war is an opportunity right now. There's no question about that. Uh, I think that the uh, social change is happening. And I think the, the window of what's possible, what's called the Overton window of political possibilities, is wide on this issue right now. I think the public is willing to tolerate uh, uh, decriminalization of marijuana, for example. Um, uh, I'm, I, I'm actually skeptical about this, unfortunately. I, I'd like to believe that based on my views, but I'm worried that one of the main compelling reasons for Trump's rise is this resurgence of a, quote, law and order, you know, Re, uh, reaction in which people view there's a lot of crime out there. We need to, in, in you know, be harsher in dealing with them, and that actually the opposite case is, is growing more than we are. Well, that's an interesting uh, perspective, man, and it may be the case. But uh, if you look at what Trump is um, able to rally his supporters around, it really hasn't been the issue of the drug war. It's been the issue of immigration, you know, illegal immigration. Sure. It's been the issue of terrorism. Um, it's been the issue of, uh, of violence in the cities. Uh, you don't see him running around like uh, Nixon would have, like Reagan did, like uh, Clinton did, yeah. and pointing the finger at drug dealers and marijuana like they did 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Okay. Just the fact that he's not focusing on that as the issue is, I think, an achievement. So here's where I'm going to uh, – first thing, uh, broadly speaking – People interested in social change uh, should not focus on trying to talk politicians into doing things that are not in their interest. Okay. Instead, they should focus on making the social change through, through communication, mm-hmm. through education, through academia, through uh, uh, social media, uh, through the things that they're good at doing, at, at, at moving the, the Overton window of political possibility, changing what the public uh, is willing to tolerate. However... There may be some people, maybe some libertarians, who are particularly skillful at getting elected. They have that skill set. There are people like Justin Amash out there, uh, Massey in Congress, um, a few other political figures who um, are able to um, maneuver through the political arena, maintain their uh, principles, and then try to be creative within that arena in being successful. Now, this is a very narrow subset of individuals, uh, not because they're particularly clever or smarter than anybody else, just because that is their skill set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there may be some of your listeners who are uh, who have that uh, capacity. And, and that means they can go into government and be prepared to be frustrated, be prepared not to achieve all your dreams, but to identify uh, opportunities 
and know how to connect them like a chessboard uh, to achieve uh, some of the outcomes they would prefer to achieve. So there are a few people who can be successful at that. So but for most people, no. One thing I wanted to ask you about from your perspective is, so as we're in an election season right now, and there's actually um, a, a Libertarian Party candidate out there who is pulling you know, quite well for at least on the standards of a Libertarian Party candidate. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is brings out in people their litmus testing, right? You know, so he's running for office. He obviously can't just run on a pure libertarian policy platform. He has to, you know, work to get votes from other constituencies and stuff. And there are some things that people are going to say, oh, my God, how could he say that? How could he be for mandatory vaccines or, you know, want to elect elect um, uh, so and so to the Supreme Court? What's your take on politicians who claim to be, you know, from your perspective, pro-liberty but then they do things that look here and there just so absolutely awful. And, and there are you know, people who do actually literally you know, sell out. And there's sometimes they're doing their best, but they face constraints. What's your take on evaluating that as a, you know, uh, someone just watching from the outside? Well, whether it's um, Rand Paul or whether it is Gary Johnson, uh, the, the goal of a, of, a, of a politician, broadly speaking, is to be elected to office. Uh, and they don't control or shape the Overton window of what the, of, of political possibilities. They're subject to it. So if they want to be elected office, they have to um, do what they can to to work within that window and market themselves to voters. So when when someone like Gary Johnson endorses the carbon tax or endorses mandatory vaccines or something like that, I don't blame Gary Johnson. I blame um, myself and uh, others in the liberty movement of not having moved the window far enough to make it possible for uh, a pro-liberty candidate to be more consistent. So the failure is not on their part. They would not change the window by, saying, by uh, changing their positions. The failure is on our part, my part, the part of the, of the movement for liberty on not successfully moving uh, the public's uh, demand for liberty far enough for those in the political process to adopt it as entirely as we'd like them to. So last question before I let you go. Um, what's your final piece of advice for an 18-year-old who's passionate about you know, making the world a freer place and defending liberty and is thinking about running for office to do so? I would, I would advise them to do two things. Uh, one, um, ask themselves, first, look for that 18, 19 year old, look around them at the people who run for office and what characteristics they share. The person who ran for their uh, student council president and so forth. And they're probably likely to find people they don't like personally in those positions. And I would say that's a warning sign to them uh, that that politics attracts the kind of people that they may not find themselves uh, enjoying the interaction with very much. Second, I would encourage them to ask themselves what they are good at. Why uh, do they want to make it a free, more free society? Well, because they care about other people, because they, they care about making their lives as uh, fruitful as possible. And they use the skills that they have, whether they're good writers or can be good writers, uh, whether they are good um, communicators and people who argue well, uh, and focus their energy, time, and effort in an arena where they can make a difference. Academia, journalism, 
you know, communications, uh, working at a think tank. Um, all those arenas are very productive places to move the Overton window. And what they could end up doing, if they're very successful, is seeing that all of a sudden there's a lot of politicians who are voting or acting more pro-liberty because of their because of the work of that 18, 19 year old. Uh, then there would have been if just that one person had gotten elected. In other words, if you push the window, you move the Overton window of political possibility to a more, more pro-freedom direction, you'll have more impact on the political outcomes than if you were elected for office 95% of the time. Well, Leon, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks. Remember, you can find the Social Change Podcast on iTunes by searching for Social Change Podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on there in the iTunes store. You can follow us at www.socialchangepodcast.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash socialchangepodcast, and on Twitter at the handle at socialchangepod.